For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Morning. I don't know if this is your first cup or not, but it's it's it's, it's mine. Um, I thought it was going to be late, actually. I was running out to get a cup. I had said I might be five minutes late, but I got through that line pretty quick. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, we've got one of our uh, traditional uh, what's new in your journal or what mm-hmm. caught your eye in your journal type of issues today. So since you probably have spent all your energy going downhill on mountain bikes uh, <laughs> over the past several days. I have. I have. Uh, <laughs> well, it's actually no energy. It's gravity. You remember that, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went over no that energy. last time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I and I don't see any abrasions on forearms mm. or anything like that. But I, I love to see in your postings on LinkedIn that you do wear a helmet and uh, we, we need we need to protect uh, the editor of OE. Uh, yeah, that noggin, that noggin yeah. needs to be protected. I hear you. I hear yeah, you. Yeah, but but I just uh, I ride the kind of bikes uh, that that don't fall over uh, indoors. Uh, so these oh. these days I'm pretty safe. Good, good, good. good <laughs> anyway, good. Well, what's on what's on your mind from OE? Well, so I'm, I went back and digged into the archives. I went through every so often. I go back and I look at sort of the last few years. And think of if things are relevant, because we're often looking to update some of our insights. So one insight popped up that I thought was a couple of years ago, but I think it's very, very relevant today. And this was trying to understand, you know, this new generation um, of young surgeons, young trainees, uh, medical students coming into the field, uh, young faculty even at some points. Um, But it's this Generation Z, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about Generation Y, the millennials, but we did a piece called the ABCs of Gen Z. And let me just give you a little bit of a background before jumping into some of why I think they're different or why we believe they're different than the millennial group of individuals. And what, so what's, are, the, what's the years of birth for Gen yeah, Z? Right. So these are loosely people born between 1995 and 2010. So they'd be in their early 20s, you know, in the early, you know, like sort of the, the earlier side of it's in their early 20s. Okay. But these are unlike previous generations, Mark, in that they've lived completely and solely in a you know social media digital era they don't know anything else uh, whereas millennials may have transitioned into it but this group has just been born into it while internet and smartphones have allowed this group to learn socialize and make impact in novel ways we're also seeing the associated costs um, with respect to mental health and this particular group more than any other group and if you go around any university campus you see the focus on mental health now more than ever and also, though, which is interesting, this Generation Z group takes pride in creative problem solving and motivation to make social change. So in many ways, uh, they're different from other groups in that they aren't as focused on making money as they are on making change. That in itself was quite an interesting group because we focus so much, at least 
early on. And I think people often confuse the millennial generation with this Generation Z, but I think it's a very, very different group. Let me just give you another example of why um, they're different from millennials. Now, for those who are wondering if you're a millennial, well, if you're born between 1981 and 1995, that would put you in the Generation Y. And then, you know, I'd be sitting in the Generation X between, you know, born between 1965 and 1980. And then before that is the baby boomer group. So there's you know, there's these multiple groups that are all within the hospital system and within the education system. And quite frankly, our readership are those multiple generations. So Gen Z is technologically way more savvy and pragmatic, risk averse and individualistic compared to millennials. In fact, they argue that Gen Z, this, this newer group or younger group of individuals is more financially responsible, but actually they're much more concerned about the cost of education than millennials were. And finally, Gen Z wants to find their dream job, whereas millennials prefer stability. Huge implications for the way we think about, you know, um, and also the way I think about some of the individuals I get, you know, the chance to work with. I mean, it is very different depending on sort of um, how they, how one might identify with respect to, you know, their motivations. But it's been very interesting. I'm wondering from your perspective, you've interacted with countless number of individual students, trainees, has this generation been different for you than unlike others? Uh, it's kind of hard to be perfectly honest with you, Mo, to differentiate the the the, the Z's from the Y's uh, yeah. in in the day to day learning environment and in the practice environment. I, I if I had to say a differentiating factor, it would seem to me to be way more environmentally conscious. Yeah. Um, the the younger uh, yeah. group the Z group than the Y group. Uh, they're both way more environmentally conscious than what I my kids call the, the geezer group, which includes me. Uh, <laughs> other, others with more respect call it the baby boomers. But um, uh, it, it's, uh, it gives uh, one optimism, I think, with that, that concern that we, we may be able to actually do something to, to stem climate change based on their energy and interest uh, in this. And I, and I, I, I see it in the, in the trainees and I see it uh, in my kids who are in the, in the Y generation. Um, but to, on the, on the learner side, uh, in the, in the uh, discussion groups and journal clubs, et cetera, it's, I have to be honest, it's really hard for me to oh. differentiate the, the Ys from the Zs. You know, you know what happens for me is that, you know, when I get a chance to interact with individuals one-to-one, -one, you really get a chance to get a sense when you ask them basically like, you know what are your aspirations the one thing that is uniquely different now um, and i think used to be is that i think like i certainly grew up with the mindset is you pay your dues and in other ways you kind of you know there's a ladder and you appropriately do the appropriate steps um, to climb that ladder should you wish to climb that ladder not everyone wants to climb these ladders but let's just say that's the case so you would spend a certain number of years doing one thing and then once that would lead to another opportunity that would lead you there was a very stepwise approach but I get asked all the time, I say, but why do we do that? That's antiquated. Like, why can't I just do what I want to do? And why can't I just start a billion dollar company? I mean, this is the aspirational side of things, right? Like, why can't I just do it? And I think what's happening is they're seeing somewhat a rebuking of the university system, which is saying the university system, okay, I see I pay lots of dues. I come out very, very um, in debt. And I'm not sure where that will lead me. Whereas our generation was, if you do not have a university education, um, you know, that's the that's the first path or, you know, college education or get some sort of education, education, then apprenticeship, 
And after apprenticeship with the education, you move forward and you keep going and you find yourself appropriate mentors. It just seems different now in that um, we're seeing, at least maybe in the tech world, so many more, um, you know, people doing very well with ever. And you know, the idea of a university is, nah, you can do it. I'm not sure. It'll, you know, there's only a, a, a very small number of, of, of parts of university training that will actually help you. At least that's a perception among some. And so I'm, we're seeing that happening a lot. And changes are happening, right? Especially now with COVID being passed. But for the most part, that period where if you were trying to get an education in the last two or three years, it's been tough, right? That you've really not been like the whole purpose of a, a educational environment has been you, you connect with people and you get in. And I think in many ways, if you're not even getting that, there's been a lot of people. I mean, the number of people I've been around that have said I'm taking a year off right. is more than I can ever remember. And I don't know really the core source of that, but I, this is this is the generation now that is definitely thinking more carefully about what is my passion? What do I want to do? And if it's not my dream job, do I want to be handcuffed to it for the next 20 or 30 years? That's happening. That's for sure. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I will say uh, in defense of the rather stodgy universities historically, particularly on the, on the science side and medical school side, you know, most medical schools now have programs where they encourage students who want to take a year off that they can do it and jump right back into a uh, into, into line or take that year off and pursue another degree, you know, a, a, a business degree or a, a management degree or a clinical research degree and then jump back in. So I, I do think that uh, at least on the medical school side with which I'm most familiar, we, we are trying to adapt uh, to, the, to the broader interests of our younger colleagues. And I think you're right. I think if we're going to be successful, and I imagine that when you look at hiring and working with this, with this, you know, current generation of um, highly talented individuals, you've got to become way more flexible. I think we've learned to do that. For example, it would have been unheard of for you and me to say, can you imagine, imagine this one? Hey, listen, I'm going to be in Florida for two weeks. I'm still working. Uh, I'm going to work from there. And I have a bunch of my other friends from other roles uh, from other places who are also working. But we're all just going to hang out and you know work in the day in our environments, all doing different jobs. But we're going to do it remotely, and then we're just going to be in Florida. So they're calling them work vacations. So there's not taking vacation time. So we say you're taking vacation time. No, 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 no. We're working. So yeah. that would never have happened, but that is happening. Like that is, I have been the recipient of a work vacation request probably ten times in the last uh, 24 months. So wow. And honestly, it works like they work hard. Like it's like, so it's hard to, we have it in our head that how can you be out in sun and I'm sitting here and you're enjoying yourself, but they're working. Right. So it's, the, it's just reinve, um, reinventing the workplace. So creating opportunities, money, isn't the issue. Like, so how many times have been in a situation when someone wants to leave or, and they say, okay, well, do you need more money? It's not about money. No, it's not about money. It's, yeah. it's I feel I need to, I'll, the word I get heard a lot, is, I will grow. In this right. opportunity right i think Where, yeah so it's 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 a whole different uh, you know that's a truly a different generation mark yeah and I, I think that's a real reason for optimism is that um these younger uh, physicians in particular really return to the motivation for what can i do to make this patient better what can i do to make the process better so more patients benefit and not driven by the size of their income right. um, and that's what we need to to save the professionalism that we that we have in medicine and and preserve our social contract uh, so that we can continue to to, to uh, operate basically independent of government 
in a way, you know, because we're in medicine, we're responsible for who it gets in and, and how we monitor one another and how we judge one another and how we credential, et cetera, et cetera. And that takes uh, a definitive commitment to our social contract moving forward. So I, I think we're in good hands uh, with the with the, the the whys and the Zs. And I would say to you that, you know, for all the program directors who might be listening or the residents who might be listening, you know, really, really bring up these issues and try to find ways in which we can make orthopedics even more attractive uh, for all the right reasons, you know, where we can make this opportunity, where we can be, where we can harness the creativity of this generation. You know, if you're a department chair, how do you retain faculty? I think you retain faculty by creating environments that allow the, you know, this generation and the generations before to do it. The hardest part is how do you get multiple generations all feeling you know, good about the environment they're in. Because if you're catering to one, you're probably not necessarily catering to the other. And I think we've got to come, you know, there's got to be an element of how do we individualize our environments in a way that we make everyone feel that they're getting what they need. Right. And of course, a, a diverse environment is the best way to do that because you got lots of discussion and, Absolutely. and need to encourage discussion. Well, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful, series of uh, thoughts that you brought up with that uh, OE publication. And I'm just, uh, I'm going to go back to traditional orthopedics, if that's okay, Mo. Oh, but absolutely. I've chosen one from the uh, May 18th uh, issue uh, here that is kind of right up uh, your, in particular, uh, bowling lane here. Mm. It's, uh, it comes from uh, our colleagues in Australia. Uh, from their uh, joint registry. And uh, the title of this manuscript is Bipolar Hemiarthroplasty Does Not Result in a Higher Risk of Revision Compared with Total Hip Arthroplasty for Displaced Femoral Neck Fractures. An analysis of 36,118 procedures from the Australian uh, National Joint Replacement Registry. And uh, of course, this fits really well with what you found uh, with the health trial. Um, but uh, just briefly, they did a very sophisticated uh, analysis using all the appropriate methods, Cox proportional hazards and instrumental uh, variable analysis, et cetera. And uh, they, they compared the results beyond uh, three months uh, for revision of hemiarthroplasty versus total, total hips. Uh, and uh, their conclusion uh, is since it, it doesn't result in a higher revision rate is that the uh, dislocation observed following total hip arthroplasty may be offset by the higher risk of revision for acetabular erosion or pain following bipolar hemiarthroplasty resulting in more equivalent revision risk. Now, uh, it, it, if, if I recall the health uh, trial results, there were, there were no difference uh, in the revisions at, at the two-year outcome and the health-related quality of life and functional measures, there were no difference at the two-year outcomes. Well, there's no meaningful difference for sure. Yes, correct. Right. Um, and uh, that, you know, there was a, a really a lot of uh, appropriate uh, applause for the, that trial and how difficult it was and, and, and the results. But almost all of my arthroplasty colleagues, and I'm sure you experienced the same thing, is just wait for the longer-term results. You'll see the difference. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, of course, a registry study is not the same as a randomized control trial because there are variables in the decision making of which to use uh, for an individual patient that affect the, those longer term outcomes. But 
So what are the plans for the, the health trial as far as the longer term outcomes? No? Well, so, so, I mean, one of the things we did right off the bat, so can you remind me, and maybe I missed it, I'm sure you said it, but how, how far out do these outcomes go? So for example, when they, in the registry paper, are they saying it's clearly beyond two years, but do you know, is there a limit that they went out to? Did they go beyond five years or 10 years or I mean, it's beyond two years, I'm guessing for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the, the lifetime of the patient uh, oh, okay. in, the, in, in, the, in the registry. Okay, got it. Okay, so it's, it's, it's multiple years. So, and I mean, it's age patients 50 to 79. Yeah. And it's, and it's long, and longer than three months is, is the okay. anything longer than three months. Got it. Okay. So, you know, the, the immediate challenge we knew we were going to face is the external validity of that trial and the generalizability beyond two years. Because the truth of the matter is, just as you had appropriately said, you know, there was an increased risk of early um, revision due to, you know, total hip replacement, you know, it was usually at, at the acetabular side. And there was a slowly incremental increasing number of revisions occurring um, from the bipolar side or from the hemiarthroplasty side due to acetabular erosion and all the other things that happen associated with, you know, the longer term use of, let's say, that was the perception. But, at the, but, you know, they were just going, like they were high and they were just kind of merging right at the two-year point. So everyone said, well, if you just go to three or four years, there'd be a big difference. Well, we did a meta-analysis, if you recall, published in the journal um, right after that to added health to others. And we went up to five-year outcomes. And based on randomized trials, we didn't see a difference in five-year outcomes. So at, at a minimum, this registry work is, you know, uh, real world data, so to speak, you can put that in big quotes, but that, that would help us give that insight. And I must say, it was only a very few studies and an OE original we did thereafter that looked at beyond five years, maybe one or two studies that suggested in the longer term total arthroplasty might, um, you know, suggest that it had, you know, better outcomes with respect to rates of revision. The challenge with that analysis was it's based on a very small number of patients, certainly not 36,000 patients. So. Okay. I think if anything, this data helps corroborate what we knew, which is in that first five-year period, we feel very comfortable saying there's no difference. And in the longer term, I think it just adds one more cast of doubt as to that we need more longer-term RCT data. Now, are we gonna get longer-term RCT data? I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know. And you could argue that health, had we had the foresight to think about following patients you know, 10 years, uh, we certainly should have done that. The problem we had is the pragmatics of funding and running trials just as we did with other trials we've run together so i mean yeah, that was a big missed opportunity for us um, and now we're hoping that we'll see other groups you know take on this challenge because you're right at the end of the day we will not have answered the question 100 to the satisfaction of those who are absolute total joint orthoplasty proponents and i don't and i also think mark in many ways the average results that we get do not always apply to the individual. And I think you and I would agree that at an individual level, the surgeon patient relationship takes precedence and he or she work together towards, you know, um, an outcome and also a plan that makes sense for them, you know, basically patient-centered care. So this data we have just helps, um, you know, in giving insights depending on that individual. Yeah, it, it's just a great deal of reassurance for those that are more often choosing hemiarthroplasty, that it's not an unreasonable uh, decision uh, just based on longer term outcome. And it goes, it, it was beyond three months out to 19 years. I, I did find it. Yeah. So. so that's, you know, clearly that, that gives us a lot more thought of pause that, 
you know, maybe the limited data in randomized trials beyond five years should be reevaluated given, you know, other large databases. Right. It's a, in a way, it's a little bit uh, frustrating and uh, defeating that when I started my career, the femoral neck fracture was called the unsolved fracture. And when I end my career, it's going to be called the unsolved <laughs> yeah, so, fracture. But <laughs> I, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's I, I've used that slide in the past, right? It was like 1953 yeah. something, you yeah. know, it was presented as a, the unsolved fracture. And here we are. And the thing that it is, it is, I mean, it's not just this, but if you look at so many other areas that were in proximal humerus, distal radius, you know, the truth is there's lots and lots of studies in these areas because they're really important. They're very common, but it seems as though we're not necessarily, like we're, we're making incremental right. you know, changes. And if you look at the history of change over time, okay, great, get it. But you can also argue that, you know, some, some of the non-operative approaches did pretty well too. And like arguing A versus B operative, I don't know if they are the right powerful questions. Maybe it's actually, you know, does operation work? Where does it work? And quite frankly, where in the absolute patient, you and I've talked about this tons, where outside of the operation in that patient's journey, can we also make important shifts, whether it's in their psychology, whether it's their perceptions, whether it's prepping for surgery, whether it's post-operative care, all that. That's where I think, you know, we're gonna have to spend our time and energy. Yeah, someone loves some of the time. I don't know if you or I are going to spend our time and energy, but someone's going to have to spend their time and energy. You and I can, you and I can critique those papers. So I'd love yeah. to do that. Yeah, I think we 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 have uh, added added some uh, heft to the to the data on which uh, surgeons make decisions. Uh, uh, but for sure, the, there still needs to be additional uh, work, even in the area of femoral neck fracture. We've contributed some, and hopefully encouraged others to to take that next increment forward uh, as we try to continue to improve our patient care outcomes. And so you know we can do it? And Mark, you know we can do it? <laughs> our Generation Z. <laughs> That's right, the that Creative problem solving group, yeah. it's on them. It's yeah. on this young generation to take, the, take, take that baton and just go with it. Yeah, that's great. Okay, Mo, well, I'm gonna get into my second cup and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, have a great day. take care, have a, you too, take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.